Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 26 on December 18th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guest on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Eero Podcast Network blog at epnnetwork.eero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-568-8276. Today I am interviewing Dr. Mike Abernathy, the Chief Flight Physician with the University of Wisconsin MedFlight Program and an Associate Professor with the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. I received lots of feedback since the last podcast, which is a good thing. Here are some of the comments from episode 25 with Dr. Brian Bledsoe. Listened to episode 25 yesterday and really enjoyed it. Had to say how much sense he makes. I preferred it when I thought he did not. That was from a listener in Texas. The next one. Nice interview with Bledsoe. He's a great guy and an EMS advocate. Glad you had the time to debunk his spawn of Satan reputation held by many in the HEMS industry. That was from a listener in Wisconsin. On episode 24, which was with the Ames Past Presidents, Thank you for coordinating this effort. It really was amazing to listen to stories from the beginning. Having started flying in 1985, I do remember much of what was shared, though getting to hear the -the behind-the-scenes stories truly added to the rest of the story. What I found interesting was the replication of themes related to safety issues and tensions among the associations and membership. One would like to think we can learn from our mistakes and move on, yet that doesn't seem to be the case. There were even comments related to competition between hospitals mentioned 20 years ago. The other common theme was the passion each and every president shared from both a personal perspective and representing the industry as a whole. That was from a listener in California. Also, a comment from episode 23 with Dr. David Lamb. I just had the opportunity to listen to episode 23 with Dr. Lamb. I just wanted you to know I really enjoyed it. It was nice learning a little bit more about the roots of the industry and how it helped establish the systems we know today. It was also interesting to hear about Marie Marbeau. It will be interesting to read more about her in the future. And that was from a listener from the U.S. Army. The quiz from episode 24 on the history of Ames is still open, so if you have not taken it, please do so as you can win a road ID gift certificate. 
There have not been many that have attempted the quiz, and those that have so far have just not got all of them correct as yet, so three gift certificates are still ready to be won. The link to the SurveyMonkey quiz is in the show notes. Road ID is sponsoring the quiz as they are trying to get the word out to all EMS personnel so that we are all aware of cyclists, skiers, runners, and other athletes wearing their identification where you can obtain very helpful personal and medical data. I am personally so convinced of the value of Road ID that I wear my bracelet all the time, even when I am not exercising. For information on their many safety-related products, go to RoadID.com, and a big thanks for their sponsorship. Remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, please be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email or call me if it is not, and I appreciate those that have done that. I am always on the lookout for all the Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook so it is easier for others to find you. Finally, the sponsorship page has been updated with the total downloads per podcast, and you can get to that by following the sponsorship link on the homepage. So far, the most popular podcasts have been the following in rank order. Podcast 1 with Joe Ty. In second place, Podcast 22 with Scott Kunkel. In third place, Podcast 2 with Dr. Bill Gerard. In fourth place, Podcast 25 with Dr. Brian Bledsoe. These numbers change because as new listeners discover the podcast, they usually go back and download prior ones. So um, stay tuned. To continue all the work I am doing in bringing news and information and the podcast, I still need your financial support. So if you can become a sponsor, your company or name will be listed according to the level of support. Sponsorship is also a great way to highlight your company or name, so do contact me as soon as possible. And before I forget, the phone number for Air Medical today has changed. The new number to call is 612-568-8276. I was using another service and was not happy with it, so switched to Google Voice. Today I am interviewing Dr. Mike Abernathy, the chief flight physician with the University of Wisconsin MedFlight program and an associate professor with the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Abernathy is one of the few physicians in the country who works on a regular basis as a flight physician. His passion is taking care of critically ill patients in diverse and even sometimes hostile environments. This interest in EMS started in his early teen years with the TD program Emergency and is still strong over 40 years later. While pursuing a college education at The Ohio State University, he became an EMT and also joined the National Guard with a helicopter aviation unit. After several career changes, he ended up in medical school at the University of Cincinnati. Mike completed his residency in emergency medicine at the University of Chicago, where he was the first chief aeromedical resident for the University of Chicago Aeromedical Network. He has worked as a flight physician with the University of Wisconsin MedFlight program since 1992 and has been the chief flight physician for the last two years. Dr. Abernathy is on the faculty of the 
University of Washington Emergency Medicine Residency Program, where he says he is helping to train the next generation of emergency physicians. He is also a member of the Board of Directors for the Air Medical Physicians Association. Mike has worked in almost every aspect of the helicopter EMS industry. He has been a referring community physician, receiving trauma center physician, ground EMT, and the medical director for several ground ambulance and helicopter EMS programs. With over 21 years and several thousand patient transports, he is one of the most experienced flight physicians in the United States. This gives Dr. Abernathy a very unique perspective on pre-hospital care, which includes, to this day, 7 to 10 helicopter shifts per month. Dr. Abernathy's opinions are from his viewpoint as both an experienced emergency medicine physician and pre-hospital care provider. He knows very well that the real-life medicine in the ditch can be very different than anything found in protocols and or textbooks. He is a well-known speaker at many regional and national emergency medicine and EMS conferences. His publications and lectures on helicopter EMS standards and utilization are a frequent source of controversy within the EMS industry. Mike is quoted as saying, There are countless great things about the HEMS industry, but it is also fraught with significant problems. Someone has to stand up and point out that the emperor has no clothes. I have no problem doing that. The bottom line is I care deeply about helicopter EMS and its reputation. I also want the most appropriate, safe, and quality care for all pre-hospital patients. Well, Mike, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate you uh, taking the time. Well, it's really great to be here. Well, Mike, you have a very interesting background. Tell our listeners a bit about your early EMS experience, how you decided to become a physician, and why you became active in air medical transport, including your personal participation as a flight physician. Well, yeah, you know, as most any kid, you know, I always had this fascination with the red lights and sirens. I lived down the street from a firehouse and was always sort of the pesky kid who hung around. (laughs) Um, I think things really started to gel. Uh, A lot of the older folk will remember the uh, program Emergency, which came out in the early 1970s, and it was really interesting. It was very well done and very much paralleled uh, the evolution of this new thing called an emergency medical technician and or paramedic. Prior to that, it was just an ambulance driver. And, you know, I was just enamored with the program, and I watched that, and I said, wow, you know, that's what I want to do with my life. And, um, again, through my experiences, once I went to college, I went to study engineering at Ohio State, uh, I did become an EMT. Uh, and work with local volunteer squads. And uh, at the same time, I joined the Ohio National Guard with a helicopter aviation unit, and that sort of was a spark, uh, my first experience with aviation, and really just fell in love with helicopters. And, uh, you know, that, that was just a great thing, too. So things gradually went along. I graduated in engineering and worked a variety of jobs, including uh, steel mills. I actually worked for the Navy as a civilian engineer. And at that point, becoming a little bit uh, 
not unsure, but just questioning, you know, what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, through a series of events, I, I decided, you know, I really wanted to, to go to medical school. Uh, and I uh, went back to graduate school in engineering at Ohio State and at the same time did my uh, pre-med requirements and started medical school at the University of Cincinnati. So, you know, at that time I knew I wanted to go into emergency medicine. You know, that was something I wanted to do. And, uh, again, another nirvana moment was my freshman year, uh, the University of Cincinnati started up their helicopter program. Uh, this would have been in 1984. And I lived in an old apartment sort of across the way from the hospital. And I remember watching the helicopter land. And this was in the early 80s. There still weren't a lot of helicopter programs at that time. But, right. And um, they flew physicians. And I said, wow, you know, <laughs> that's what I want to do with my life. And um, so when it came time to graduate and I started looking at emergency medicine residencies, there were quite a few that uh, had positions as part of the residency where you worked as a flight physician. Now, it's one thing if you're just sort of a, a ride along, uh, you know, with a nurse and a medic or two nurses, but uh, there were quite a few programs, I think about 15 at that time, that offered dedicated flight physician positions. So I... Um, looked very carefully, and that was one of my requirements. So I uh, chose the University of Chicago, and there was a young faculty member there named Ira Blumen, <laughs> who, <laughs> and everyone knows Ira and his That's name, right. but at that time, you know, he just, uh, you know, he was just sort of starting out, and he had this great enthusiasm for the helicopter EMS industry, and he was a real details man and uh, knew a lot about the administrative end as well as the medical end. And uh, so he sort of took me under his wing, and I became, they created a position. I became the first chief aeromedical resident. So in my senior year, a lot of my activities were um devoted to the helicopter, and so uh, I finished uh, University of Chicago in the early 90s and um, then started looking. Yeah. That, that's a, uh, I, I was certainly a great uh, mentor for you. Oh, he certainly was, uh, and still is to this day. I'm always yes. bothering yeah. him and, and asking <laughs> his opinion on things, and uh as I said, he's very knowledgeable and very well-recognized in the industry. That's right. Well, that's a great story um, with all your early experience and where you were living uh, each step along the way. So you truly are doing what you really like to do. Oh, no doubt. And yeah. that, that's the sad part. You know, when I left residency, uh, as I said, I always use the Jimmy Buffett quote, uh, my occupational hazard being the occupations just not around. Um <laughs> There weren't a lot of opportunities for an attending-level emergency physician uh, in uh, working on the helicopter. Now, there were opportunities to be a medical director, uh, but to actual fly and be a pre-hospital caregiver. And I was fortunate enough to uh, find an area. I started working in one of the community hospitals in southern Wisconsin uh, out of residency and I started working for the University of Wisconsin Med Flight. Uh, that was 19 years ago, and I've been doing it ever since. Well, well, you've uh, seen the, the the growth of this uh, industry or the air medical community uh, since you've been involved, really, from the beginning or been around it from the beginning. 
what are your views on the expansion and growth um, with especially with the helicopter EMS side of it? Well, that's a real loaded question. Uh, you know, there's a lot. If you look at the way the programs have uh, just exploded, you know, when I finished residency in the early 90s, there were 300 helicopters or so. Now there are close to 900. Um, in the early 2000s, things sort of took off astronomically uh, as far as the numbers of helicopter programs in the United States. The traditional model, as things started out, was helicopters are very expensive to run and staff. So the only place where you saw these helicopters in the 70s and 80s, or predominantly, was based out of larger tertiary care hospitals. And at that point, they really, it's always nice in any business to operate in the black, but they looked at the helicopter like they looked at their trauma service or you know their trauma center. Right. It's not necessarily something you make money on. It's a community service, and there is downstream revenue uh, to be associated. So even though you're not in the black with your versus what it actually costs to run the helicopter versus what the patient is billed for that service, that these patients come to your institution, they go to your ICUs and your ORs, so eventually you do make money. Um, the other aspect of this was that the talent pool they had to draw on, you had these larger tertiary care centers that you know had very experienced nurses and, uh, and medics and physicians involved in critical care, so they had a, a really large talent pool to uh, tap into. And the other thing, they had the training centers. Uh, you know, they had ORs and ERs and ICUs where these flight crews could be trained. And we'll talk about that a little bit later about RSI mm. and airway management. So you know, it was an ideal situation to to train these, but uh, train these people. And you know, you really did have a very well. Uh, trained group, and it was extremely competitive to get a job as a flight nurse or a flight medic. But uh, in the early 2000s, Medicare and Medicaid changed the reimbursal, improved the reimbursal on helicopter transport. And what happened as a result of that is that you could actually, for the first time, a business could make you know decent money. You could make some profit transporting patients by helicopter. Uh, so the whole private sector took over, and meaning that instead of a hospital sponsoring a helicopter program, they could uh, be independent, community-based. Now, I don't like to use that term. You know, these all get mixed up where you talk about community-based versus hospital-based and for-profit versus non not-for-profit. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a lot of hospitals that are not-for-profit, but, you know, people make big money. Um, but... The intent of a lot of these, I guess the driving force uh, for a lot of these newer programs is that you're going to transport patients, the patients will be billed. That money uh, from the billings uh, goes into paying for the helicopter and the crews, and there's no other pockets that um, are involved. So as I said, in the past, you had mainly large hospitals. So if payroll wasn't met or the expenses for the helicopter program weren't met, 
they were covered by the hospital. And there were also several community-based, county-based programs and state-based programs like that. But as time has gone on, they have shifted into these community-based programs. And with that, you know, some of them do an absolutely great job and are very well-trained. But uh, then others, uh, as far as when you start looking at aircraft, what type of aircraft are they using? Single versus uh, twin engines? There's a lot of debate about that, you know, the size of the aircraft. Then you can start looking at the crew configurations and the experience level and the training of the crews, not only the initial training, but the ongoing training. All of these things cost money, and it depends where the program's focus is, whether uh, they're um, focused mainly on profit. Everyone wants to make money, but um, as time goes on, we're seeing more and more of these um, community-based for-profit programs. Some of them, again, are very good and do a great job, but others leave a lot to, to be desired in both the quality of uh, the aviation and as well as uh, the quality of the medical care. Right. And, and I understand that, and I think, you know, the difference between for-profit not for Profit is, you know, where the money goes in the end. If there's excess revenue over expenses, that you know, not-for-profit puts that back into the organization used for capital. For-profit, uh, you know, if it's uh, a publicly traded, goes to the stockholders or investors. Uh, in the case of uh, private, um, but wasn't there a need to expand services beyond just the large tertiary care centers and and bring those services? Uh, two areas that weren't covered in the U.S. You know, before 2000, were we really covering the whole United States? And also, you know, models that are putting helicopters closer to uh, rural areas. That's, that's an excellent question. And um, there's always a need in the rural areas. Uh, you know, we go, we have that situation in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the further out you get, the longer transport times, and granted, the services are needed. And there are a portion of these community-based helicopters that do exactly that. Uh, they go into these rural areas and, uh, and provide a very valuable service. But also, uh, if you look at it, uh, if you ever look at the Adams uh, Air Medical Database, mm-hmm. they do a re- it's out of the, I believe, the University of Buffalo, and they do a really good job of tracking the data and where these helicopters are and what type of helicopters. But in a lot of areas of the countries, there is a huge redundancy of helicopters, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Right. Uh, but... You know, granted, some are placed in rural areas, but then there are a lot of helicopters, you know, placed in areas that are already very densely covered by other helicopter programs. It turns into, you know, sort of a business competition model. You know, looking at these 900 helicopters, and if you look at, they have a great map of the United States and where these just huge densities in Kentucky and Tennessee and southern Ohio and Pennsylvania. And really, you wonder, you know, because they're competing against each other, um, if 20 or 30 percent of these helicopters would go away, would it really affect patient care and response times? Um, yeah, there's not a lot of thought put into as far as geographic and patient need where these helicopters go. A lot of this is, is business driven. 
Right. Yeah, and that's, you know, as I said, I think we've gotten into this discussion in previous podcasts, too. It, it's, it's kind of, we are really a reflection of the American healthcare system, which has its own issues. We, we don't have a planned health system. I mean, uh, you know, you have a certificate of need in some areas of the country. Other areas are completely wide open. And, you know, it does competition make us better or does planning make us better? And I, I think we're still trying to figure that out in the United States. And uh, you know, I agree that uh, certain areas you have to, you, you do have to sit back and scratch your head and look at it. And then other areas are you know, completely uncovered. And a lot of that are areas that don't have a, a population density to support that. So do you have some type of, you know, controlled availability model where you're not paid per transport, but paid to be there to have the service uh, in the area? Yeah, that's that's correct. And then again, the helicopter EMS industry isn't unique. I mean, look at the hospitals that compete. Right. Uh, you know, they duplicate the exact same service. Uh, Rockford, Illinois, has been famous. You know, from the 1990s, they have three very three large hospitals, and it's a city of about two uh, 250,000 people. And you have three large hospitals, and you have two dueling trauma centers with two heli separate helicopter programs, and you have three separate cardiac cath labs, and uh, just amazing duplication. You know, a, a city that size, there's plenty of them that have been served by one large hospital. So, uh, yeah, it's not unique to the, uh, the helicopter EMS system. Right. What are your thoughts, too, and this is kind of related to this whole thing, and, you know, that a big division or dividing line in our community has been the Airline Deregulation Act and the inability of states to regulate air medical services like they do for ground EMS services, you know, which they can. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think, it, you know, it's sort of insanity. <laughs> you know, when you think about the loophole, um, you know, medical care provided to critically ill and injured patients during transport shouldn't be compromised just because a patient is flown in an air ambulance rather than moved by ground. Um, so you're taking a pay, you know a law that was meant for the airlines right. whose sole job is to move a person from one place to another. And you're applying it to EMS, where you know there's not—it's not just moving the patient; uh, it's there's a lot of care issues involved, and that's the problem. Is that any time a state makes any uh, questions uh, a helicopter provider about anything about equipment on board or something like that? I think there was a lawsuit filed in North Carolina right. several years ago looking at that. Um, so saying simple, uh, something as simple as, you know what, you need environmental control on your helicopter. Uh, you're down in Texas. You should have to have air conditioning. Um, no, they can't do that. They, they can pull out the Airline Deregulation Act and say, no, in fact, um, you know, you really can't tell us what to do. And so a lot of states are, you know, they have sort of a hands-off uh, approach to this. And so the helicopter industry is largely 
unregulated, especially from the aviation end. So if you look at EMS, ground EMS, it's heavily regulated by most states. You know, they will look at a uh, EMS agency. They can talk about what type of ambulances you can run, uh, their specifications on their brakes, their box size, lighting, suction, power, restraints, all of these very important factors um, but then when you take the whole thing and, and also the medical care, what medical equipment mm-hmm. uh, you specifically need, uh, but then you take the same situation, apply it to a helicopter, and it's sort of a hands-off situation. You know, we, we really won't tell you what you can do. A perfect example is in Wisconsin. Um, I was really, I've done some digging uh, around and looking at the current regulations as far as helicopter EMS, ground EMS is very well regulated. Um, so the equivalent of this would be the state, with, you know, with the helicopters saying that, uh, well, now ground EMS, we're not going to tell you what you need in your vehicles. We're not going to tell you what sort of providers you have. You know, if you want to take your patients in a uh, back of a pickup truck with uh, first responders and call yourself an ambulance, that's fine. And that's exactly what's going on uh, with the helicopter EMS industry. Um, in at least in Wisconsin, there are very little regulations. I was amazed uh, the state EMS board submitted a pretty lengthy description, just going over some basic things about helicopters, saying that you know they need to have a good searchlight, um, they need to have onboard suction, they need to have environmental controls, onboard oxygen, adequate patient restraints, a list of several very common you know sense things, and the governor uh, the governor's office or whoever decides on the final rules has sort of nixed them all, and um, there's very little regulation. The one thing they did prior to, well, it will be prior to uh, January 1st, 2010 uh, or 2011, there were no real regulations on the type of providers. So in Wisconsin, you could very easily staff a helicopter if you wanted with two EMT basics. and so they distilled all these down, and they just said that, okay, well, we have to provide paramedic-level uh, providers if you're going to have a helicopter. And also, there should be some certification by a national organization, and they specifically do not mention canes right. or anything. So, and unfortunately, that's the way it is in a lot of states. Um, so tomorrow, I could rent a helicopter, hire a couple medics, um, and start Abernathy flight right. in in Wisconsin with very little interference from the state. Yeah, I, I uh, noticed that you know coming into the state in October, uh, I was at the uh, Wisconsin Air Medical uh, Council meeting, and the, they were explaining that you know the initial draft and what ended up, and it was quite amazing how much was left out. Um, but let me. The other question, I mean, I, I know supporters of of the Airline Deregulation Act say that states can indeed control the licensure of, of air medical helicopters, and, you know, states do do that. But, um, you know, the difference, however, and I think what we're, where they're coming from is we cross state lines a lot more often than a ground ambulance, except maybe the services that are, you know, right on the borders. Um, and... So then if you have to comply with all these different state laws, is that really good for, for air medicine? 
Well, I think you'd have to treat it like we do on the medical end, uh, you know, because there's always been this talk. You know, there's some um, air medical providers, especially fixed wing. Uh, you may be providing, you may, may be a medic or a nurse or even a physician um, working out of a fixed wing base, but yet you're going to serve several different states. Uh, you know, some of the um, uh, rotor wing uh, programs also are in a similar thing. So it doesn't make sense to be licensed in each of these states. But, you know, the general consensus is that if you follow, you know, the medical guidelines and the protocols and all that of the state you are licensed in and where you do most of your work, uh, you know, that's good enough. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the states do, you know, when you think about it, just think about medicine in general. Why do we need a state physician license? Why do I have to get, you know, is medicine practice different in Illinois than it is in Wisconsin or Ohio? Ideally, there should be just a, you know, a federal medical license and a federal nursing license and mm -hmm. a federal EMT license where you don't have to go through all the, you know, the different states' politics because medicine as a whole, you know, should be practiced, you know. And it's a made debate, but, you know, there should be sort of a, a, a standard. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, I would say as long as you're adhering to the, the state that you're based out of, I, I don't think it would create much of a problem. Yeah, I, th I think that's true when you're going uh, interstate. So you pick up a patient in, you know, Iowa and bring them back to Wisconsin or vice versa. Um but it's when you're based in, say, Wisconsin and do an intra-state transport in Iowa. I think that's where the, the problems right. lie and where you need to have dual licensure um, by right. uh, your, your program to your, to your uh, personnel. But uh, I, I agree with you on the licensure. My wife's a teacher, and I think she would say the same thing about uh, teaching, state teaching yeah. licenses. It's, uh, it gets crazy. And then the um, other thing, too, it's uh, when you have all these different licenses, how many times does it's not only just the paperwork and the hassle of doing it, it provides sort of a, a harbor for the incompetent. You can get your license revoked in a couple different states, and yet if there's not a lot of reciprocity and the states aren't talking, uh, you can just go to another state and apply for a license. So. Right. Well, let's talk about uh, – you've um, spoken in uh, national meetings and stuff about the Wisconsin and Missouri paradox. Uh, tell, tell our listeners what this is about. Well, this is a great example of the, the, what's wrong with the helicopter industry. Uh, so the state of Wisconsin, I believe we have about 65,000 square miles and 6.5 million people. I know the strait pretty well. I've worked in it for you know 19 years. You know, we have several large metropolitan areas, and we have a large rural areas and you know, a variety of topography. And so to cover this state we have a total of 11 helicopters. And, you know, I know the industry pretty well. I know the EMTs. Now, I think we do a pretty good job. It's not perfect. I mean, not all areas are covered as well as they should be, and maybe there's some overlap and duplication. But as a whole, I, I think we don't need any more helicopters. Some may say, you know, God, we'll probably one or two of those 11 helicopters could go away and there wouldn't be a tremendous um, impact. So that's 11 helicopters covering Wisconsin. We just go down the river and head west a little bit, and when we look at the state of Missouri, 
again, about 60, oh, it's somewhere in the 65 to 68,000 square miles. Again, the same population roughly, you know, give or take 100,000. And the same topography. I mean, we have a couple large cities, but some large, you know, extensive rural areas. Um, and if you look at the state of Missouri, there are 33 helicopters. Uh, I think there's 34. They just added one. So we have over 300% more helicopters in the state of Missouri than in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that occurs, but medical necessity isn't one of them. You know, are the people in Missouri just that much more sick that they require critical care transport, or are they more prone to trauma? I don't know. But, uh, but you know, it's not the factor of, you know, 5 or 10 or 20 percent. We're talking over 300 percent. And is it the types of programs... Uh, more community-based um, in Missouri over Wisconsin? Yeah, in fact, um, yeah, there are. There, there's a lot. You know, one of the largest uh, community-based providers, Aravac, right. you know, their headquarters are in Missouri. But if you look in the state of Wisconsin, uh, the uh, helicopters are, are pretty much hospital-based. Right. Um, or they have an association with them. Uh, Flight for Life was uh, initially, you know, based out of Fraydard in Milwaukee, and they always had their sort of satellite base down in McHenry, and they've sort of moved out on their own, and now they have a third base up in Fond du Lac area. But again, they have, you know, strong ties with a large tertiary institution, as uh, most of the programs uh, in, in Wisconsin do. Right. So is that... It, that is the the big difference then in in your mind that you don't uh, i mean i having worked in both states i mean i the kind of population probably is a little bit more concentrated in Missouri on the east side and west side kansas city st louis um you know and you've got a larger rural area in between but it, you know i i'm not Speaking, I, I haven't looked at all the demographics to say that for sure. Would that have anything to do with it? Um, I don't think. Uh, you know, again, yeah. you look at Wisconsin, you have most of the population, um, again, up towards the Twin Cities, Milwaukee, and the southern part. Right. But, you know, right. there's large areas of the northern part of the state that are are, are very rural also. Right. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, you've written, spoken about advanced airway issues for years now. Um, provide our listeners a history of RSI and how and why it developed. Yeah, you know, this is re really an interesting thing. Um, RSI, now some people, you know, they talk about it uh, as far as rapid sequence intubation uh, versus rapid sequence induction. We're talking, this is the same thing. We're, by definition, it is the administration of a potent sedative and a rapid-acting paralytic in order to facilitate endotracheal intubation. And now, you know, every medic knows about RSI. It's a very common thing in the pre-hospital world. But when I started in, uh, in residency, it was still a very exotic thing. You know, it was developed back by anesthesiologists back in, I believe, in the late 50s, early 60s, in order to crash intubate C-section patients because 
they usually had a full stomach. You know, your regular OR people when you're scheduled surgeries had been fasting. But um, C-section patients typically, you know, they weren't sure when they were going labor. They had full stomachs. And there were cases of aspiration, which are a bad thing. So they want to figure out how can we get them intubated as quick and safely as possible. So the anesthesiologist developed this RSI. So along comes emergency medicine, and, um, you know, it's a young specialty. It really just started in the 70s. And, you know, one of the cornerstones of emergency medicine is airway management. But prior to that, no physician outside of an anesthesiologist would ever dream of using a paralytic or, you know, thiopental outside the warm confines of the uh, OR. Uh, You know, it was just sort of uh, forbidden. But uh, the emergency medicine folk, you know, prior to that, we had all sorts of devices. We used nasotracheal intubation. Uh, They had situations where I can remember where it was still very acceptable to just give someone just a bunch of Valium until they just got so loose and sedated that you could get a tube down. And that proved to be, you know, not the best thing. So slowly we, you know, heard about this uh, thing called RSI and figured, wow, you know, this is great. We can actually intubate patients without them being, number one, totally flaccid or, you know, in cardiopulmonary arrest or, you know, the traumatic one, nasotracheal intubation and awake intubation. So this became a tool of emergency medicine. And when I started my residency in the late 80s, this was still a very exotic procedure in the idea that, you know, a physician who's not an anesthesiologist is is using paralytics outside of the OR. But as time has gone on, this has become one of our cornerstone procedures, and we're very good at it. So some people uh, back in the 80s, you know, started thinking about, well, if we can train young physicians to do this, what about if we get very well-trained paramedics ground paramedics too. There were some ground units that were doing it back in the 80s or very well-trained flight nurses and flight medics. And if they can use this tool in the field and it initially started out with some of the programs who had flight physicians because they already had the skill. But uh, slowly, a lot of these larger, uh, a lot of these flight programs, again, they're based out of large tertiary hospitals, tertiary care hospitals, uh, after extensive training. I mean, these nurses and medics, you know, spend a lot of time in the OR, a lot of time in the ICUs. Their medical directors were breathing down their back. You know, every intubation was QA'd and just just a lot of training. So they took this out in the field and improved you know, guess what? It's not only physicians, but, uh, you know, nurses and medics can use this tool in the field. And um, so in the EMS industry, I can remember, you know, even in the early 90s, there were still, you know, quite a few programs that uh, weren't doing RSI. But now, you know, it's become the standard. But, you know, things have happened. As we go on, that, uh, you know, there's more and more programs and flight programs and it's spread into the ground, um, a lot of the ground EMS units where RSI is considered just sort of a a right. You know, if you're a paramedic, uh, you should be able and be certified to do RSI. And I have no problem with that, again, as long as you have the training. And what's happened is uh, for a lot of units, again, I'm not saying uh, generalizations, but, you know, there are some flight programs and some ground units that have 
excellent training and airway uh, in RSI and other airway procedures, and they go to the ORs and they have continual training. Uh, but then again, there's a lot, uh, and I see it in the field and also with other programs where they're not getting experience. Um, there's some flight programs that their idea of RSI training is, you know, you got to watch this video uh, and, okay, intubate the head a couple times, and there you go. Okay, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. And so there, there needs to be, you know, you know, we've set the bar too low. There needs to be. Uh, certain criteria, you know, what you actually need as far as training to perform this procedure accurately and safely. Um, Mike, does, what exactly, I mean, how much training does someone need to be competent in RSI? And are some of these factors mitigated by the use of uh, simulation? Those those are two very good questions. The the thing I can tell you is the amount of training (laughs) that you you can't have is if you're doing one or two or three field intubations a year, you probably should not be relying on RSI. Wang out of I think it was out of Pittsburgh at the, and published a paper looking at uh, success rates with various amounts of training and uh, he found in order for a, a new paramedic to get 90% of the intubations they needed somewhere around 15 intubations uh, to uh, you know hit that 90% that's during their training along with of course all the didactics. And the ongoing, because just once you're trained to do something, if you don't use it, obviously you're going to lose the skill. And that's the problem with some of the programs that aren't as busy. And and for ongoing, you need to be doing about, you know, again, 12 to 15 tubes a year. And that's for 90%. Um, I can tell you, you know, there's programs out there, there's ground medic programs, I know, that, you know, we're in large cities, Milwaukee, Chicago, uh, even Madison, where actual intubations per paramedic um, are somewhere, you know, below three uh, per year. And it's multifactorial. Uh, Back, again, when just a few medics were performing intubation or a few groups were doing it, there was a lot more uh, training facilities. when you're looking at a large tertiary facility like UW, we have to train emergency physicians, uh, anesthesiologists. Uh, you know, the paramedic students, unfortunately, aren't getting the OR time they used to. And so it does present a problem. So you can't get the OR time, which brings you to the catch-22. Well, how can I get the experience, you know, if, if I can't go out there and intubate people? Right. And that's where simulation comes in. And um, the simulation is a neat thing, and it's just amazing. We're not talking about intubating mannequin heads or anything uh, like that. You know, you have the high-tech uh, simulators, which are quite expensive but can be shared. And they are good when you talk about endotracheal intubation uh, for the gun drill, meaning that to, to, to learn this is what you have to have ready, these are the steps you need to follow. But 
it does not simulate the actual anatomy. As anyone who's intubated someone on the side of the road, at 10 below zero in the middle of the night, I mean, you just can't simulate that. Uh, so for endotracheal intubation, you know, I don't care whether you've intubated the simulator a thousand times. Um, it's still a very different world when you're out in the field intubating an actual person. Which brings us then to the next step uh, is RSA, rapid sequence airway. And this is a great concept and it provides uh, you know, the medics and nurses with a tool that they can use. And I didn't know it, but I've been practicing this for years. You know, the whole idea of RSA is uh, the idea that you take the emphasis off of intubation and you put it on airway. We have a lot of great superglottic airways. Uh, back when I started, uh, you know, if you failed RSI and couldn't get the patient intubated, um, you had to go to cricothyrotomy, which is a procedure that not a lot of people do. I myself maybe do one a year, and it was fraught with hazards. It's a complex procedure to do. Uh, uh, and if you're in a situation where you're really panicked because you failed to intubate the patient, this isn't the time to go on to an even more difficult procedure. Mm -hmm. So along came the combi tube and this whole array of superglottic airways. Um, we have uh, uh, LMAs, we have King LTs, and the combi tube was sort of the first one. So the neat thing about these airways is that they can be inserted blindly. And when you're putting in these airways, they have a great fidelity with simulation, meaning that if you can work on that simulator and you know how to pass an LT or an LMA and you're good at it and you're hitting 90 or 100 percent, and the nice thing about a simulator is they don't care how many times you do it, so you can get lots of experience, you can become very proficient at this airway. So back to the RSA, uh, so rapid sequence airway. So instead of the emphasis on intubation, you set up like you're going to intubate. You have your equipment ready, your tubes ready, and everything's great. So you take one, maybe two looks. And if you don't see a clear shot at the cords, you don't intubate the patient and you move on to your secondary airway. It's not your crash airway. It's not your failed airway. It's just another airway. And so in these situations, then, that tube uh, or the LT, because the patient's already sedated, they're already paralyzed, you can pass uh, the LT or the LMA with very little problem. But a lot of situations, too, on that first look, you may see cords, you put that tube down, hey, it's great. But if you look at all the bad airway cases, uh, the common theme on all these was that they kept on trying to intubate the patient. One partner would try four times, then the next partner would try a couple times, and it was just fraught with problems. So I know in Madison and I think all of Dane County, they're going to this RSA protocol where the paramedics are still using the drugs, they're still using the sedatives, still using the paralytics. But in this situation, you're going to take, you know, one or two looks. And if you can intubate the patient, wonderful. If you can't, 
uh, you put the LT down, and uh, it really works well. I've been in those situations uh, in the field where you have a large person, a trauma, there's facial trauma, they're already uh, secured on the backboard uh, with a collar, they've got a small mouth, you know it's going to be a difficult intubation uh, without really uh, extending the C-spine. So in these situations, sometimes I will go straight to an RSA and pass the uh, LT tube, and it works really well. Given your thoughts on the the training, the, the extensive training that you need to do with RSI, could there be a case that certain provider levels shouldn't even go that route to begin with, or is it that much better uh, to have the patient intubated? Well, I don't think, you know, as far as intubation, you know, because I always talk how it's the gold standard. And, you know, I've given this lecture and said, you know, basically said that if you don't have the skill to intubate or the numbers to do the procedure, Mm -hmm. that's just half of it. A lot of the bad things happen because it's not only they don't have the skill to for the procedure, but they don't have enough experience for good judgment. You know, I intubate a hell of a lot less patients than I did 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Why? Because I know how not to intubate a patient and I know when not to intubate a patient. Uh, You know, wisdom comes from experience and experience comes from mistakes. And I've made my mistakes. But the problem is, you know, with a lot of these uh, providers out there, they're just not getting the volume of airways to judge. Uh, You know, when our when our um, resident physicians graduate, uh, they, you know, they've intubated well over 200 to 300 people. So even at that stage, you know, they have some judgment, you know, wow, this looks bad. I may not want to intubate this. We may want to go with an LMA or I may just want to bag them. But, you know, that's part of the problem. It's not just the skill for the procedure. It's knowing when to use it and when not to use it. And a lot, again, a lot of these bad airway cases, it's not only the patient was not intubated correctly and things went wrong, but it's the fact that they probably didn't require uh, intubation in the first place. Yeah. So your your message really is, is it's not just that you you've can intubate it. It's knowing when to do it and when not to, and not wasting time knowing the signs that, you know, you better jump to the next uh, level and go uh, with a uh, RSA type procedure if you know that you can't do that. Exactly. Um, uh, Again, you know, part of it, you know, comes with experience and judgment, but then, you know, just the whole RSA, and it allows you to get a definitive airway. And in the field, you know, these LTs and LMAs, uh, I brought plenty of patients back with them, and they work just fine. You know, ideally, in an ideal world, sure, you'd want to get a tube down, but... The alternative, whether you're flailing, trying to get someone intubated, and God forbid, you know, an unrecognized esophageal intubation, you know, versus the LT. But this whole concept of RSA, and we're teaching our residents now, granted, in the emergency room and emergency departments, a little bit friendlier confines, uh, and we have a lot of backup, you know, rather right. than just off on the side of the road somewhere. But, uh, you know, I'd really like to see this whole idea of RSA and, you know, just not eliminate intubation, but you take the whole emphasis off of intubation. You put the emphasis on providing an airway. Right. 
Well, I think that's a good uh, segue because one of the areas that I wanted to talk to you about is um, uh, MedFlight. Your program is one of the, I think, I think we had talked when we were planning this, what, five programs now in the country that are flying physician nurse uh, as opposed to a nurse-nurse team, nurse-paramedic, or a nurse-RT team. Um, has the uh, University of Wisconsin program always uh, flown that way? And um, what do you believe are the advantages over these other teams? That's a good question. Um, you know, worldwide, it's interesting. If you look in other countries, in the right. UK, in Australia, uh, Scandinavia, and Germany, uh, they traditionally fly, they fly medic physician. So worldwide, I think we're, I don't know about numbers, because, again, they don't have the density of helicopter EMS we have. But, uh, you know, a lot of the programs fly, whereas in the United States, when I started my training, it wasn't uncommon, but it certainly wasn't the majority. Uh, the UW has always been committed since, you know, they were founded back in 1985 that they flew uh, with a physician on board. And since about the year 2000, uh, we have a great cadre of emergency medicine trained physicians. Um, so it's not just sort of any old, you know, any old physician. Uh, these are physicians who have gone through, you know, their undergraduate, uh, their medical school, and then done anywhere three to four years of uh, training specifically in emergency medicine. What's interesting is a lot of emergency medicine people like myself have a strong EMS background, and, uh, and EMS is one of the cornerstones of emergency medicine that even if they don't have a background, um, they are exposed to it and uh, trained in it uh, during their uh, residency. Mm -hmm. So we have a group right now. We, we fly one and a half ships. We have one 24-hour helicopter and one 12-hour helicopter. Uh, we have about five of our physicians, such as myself, are at the UW. Uh, our primary job is at the UW, meaning that I work about half-time in the emergency department, and I work about the other half on the helicopter, and um, there's several physicians in a similar situation. But we also have a group of uh, physicians from the community uh, who work at various emergency departments throughout Wisconsin, um, throughout, well, we even have one fellow who comes in uh, the whole way from Philadelphia. He thinks it's such a great job and, wow. and really just sort of hard to find. So he'll fly in once a month and uh, works, you know, his shifts and then flies back. But we have... Um, you know, a group of these community emergency physicians who are just a wonderful addition uh, to our group. But, Mike, what specifically do you feel is better about that crew configuration over, you know, a nurse-nurse team or really the most common nurse-paramedic team? Well, I don't want to say what's better. I, I think yeah. we provide a, a different level of care. Okay. Um, again, in these situations where we're taking care of some you know, very sick patients, uh, you know, it's sort of analogous to emergency medicine. Uh, if you look at all comers who walk into emergency department, you know, probably 20% of the people who walk into a, an emergency department could be treated by housekeeping. You know, uh, I, I think I have a bug bite. Yes, that's a bug bite. I <laughs> twisted my ankle. Well, don't walk on it. Some very common sense things that don't require much knowledge at all. 
And then as you go up, you know, there are patients, probably 20 or 30 percent of the patients in an emergency department could be treated by a well-seasoned emergency department nurse and or senior medic type person, you know, basic fractures, asthma, basic evaluation of chest pain. And then you keep on moving up the ladder in the acuity. Uh, you know, there are some patients, sure, you know, emergency medicine is a specialty. Uh, it hasn't always been. So could some of these patients be taken care of by, say, a primary care physician, a family practice doc, uh, or an intensivist, or a pediatrician? You bet they could. You know, there's actually, when you look at it, there's a small subsection of our patients, and we contribute, again, the phys emergency physicians contribute to the overall flow, but um, we exist, you know, to care for a very small subset, not a very small, but a small subsection of the most critically ill patients. So I'm not saying that um, we need emergency physicians on every helicopter or even physicians on every helicopter. Um, because there's a lot of, you know, uh, many of the flights uh, can be very, very easily trained or very easily taken care of by well-trained nurses and medics. And that seems to be the standard in the country, and there's nothing a matter with that as long as they receive very good training. Um, but, you know, I know there's patients out there that uh, I've taken care of that it's, it's, wow, you know, they just really taxed my abilities. And again, as an emergency physician for over 20 years and a flight physician, uh, so, you know, taking care of these pa you know, patients has really just pushed my limits as a physician. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you know, how that would be to handle such a patient as a nurse or a medic. Again, I, I, I don't get cocky about this or anything. You know, it's a very unique niche we have. And the nice thing about it is to provide this experience, uh, we have our, our residency and our residents get out into the field uh, probably about 10% of our shifts are covered by senior level emergency physician or emergency medicine residents. Yeah. And by I, this time, yeah, I was going to ask it, you that. I was wondering if uh, if it was uh, you know full time or uh, already physicians, or if there was residents uh, you know that uh, hadn't been uh, boarded in emergency medicine yet that were flying. Yeah, uh, they mm -hmm. do this their uh, senior year. And by uh -huh. this time, I mean, they've had extensive, uh, vigorous, you know, critical care experience, a lot of airway experience. Um, and again, a lot of them have previous pre-hospital experience. Uh, so it provides them with a chance not only on scene flights to uh, work out in the field with EMS units, but also to go to these small rural hospitals because sometimes in academia, uh, one gets sort of the ivory tower complex. Yeah, good point. Good point. Uh, and to go out to some of these small hospitals and see the incredible care, very good care that some of these patients receive. Uh, and you also see you know, some very bad care, but the same thing could be said about large hospitals. But you, you need to go out there and experience you know, where you have maybe have some family practice doc in Lancaster, Wisconsin, who's handling multiple traumas. Uh, and he's the only doc in the house. You know, whereas at UW, you know, we have a whole surgical, we have a whole trauma team and you know, pediatric trauma specialists and all this at our beck and call. But when you're out there on your own, and again, I, I have worked in small rural hospitals and community hospitals where 
I am the trauma team along with my nurses. Uh, so it's a very different world. And I think, you know, that's one of the most valuable experiences of being a flight physician in an academic program like this is to uh, have that experience and to be able, able to go out there. And it's, it's very humbling uh, to see uh, how some of these people really just just do a great job. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think that's um, an area that some some physicians, some of the specialties. I think we get need to get more out there to see, you know, what goes on in some of the smaller hospitals to appreciate what they do and you know with their abilities and and the type of assistance that they need. And it's got to be just great experience for you and the other physicians when you're working back at at UW or whatever hospital to know what it's like out there, to know what it's like in the field and know what it's like to be in a smaller hospital. Oh, it does. You know, yeah. And again, a lot of these physicians will go on to work in community hospitals. So uh, they're right. trained, unfortunately, in large academic centers. And one of my goals in academic emergency medicine is to keep it from becoming a triage center because you do have everyone at your beck and call. Right, right. I did just one final question in this this area because um, you know I know a lot of programs you know they and as I said before use a a, a paramedic because they bring that kind of streetwise experience uh, and then you have nurse that you'd want critical care experience. You've talked about that you'd like you know your physicians to have that EMS ba- background. You certainly had that. How does the team? How do you approach that with the team? Are you requiring uh, that the nurses be paramedics or or have a preferred background in that area? No, but you know when the reality of it is, and I've been doing this for twenty years, the majority of the time when we get on scene, it was very different when I was a medic. My role as you know the first responder and the medic on scene mm-hmm. versus by the time the helicopter's there, you know, most of the time, I would say, you know, for our scene flights, uh, probably 70 to 80 percent of the time, the patient's already in the back of the ambulance. So it's really just learning to deal with that environment. Um, certainly, there's times where you're handling a patient who's being extricated. You have to understand what their job is, and they have to understand what your job is. And there has to be, you know, really, you know, that's where you need teamwork. I got to understand exactly what they need to get this patient out that's pinned in the car that may require sedation and or procedures while they're still in the vehicle. Um, but again, that that's a minority of the time. You know, the majority of the time, I have found that you know the patients are already in the back of the ambulance. So. The skills that I used as a medic, as a first responder, I really don't use um, as a flight physician. And, you know, the nurses, and the other nice thing at UW is that our flight nurses are are very experienced. We have very little turnover. Uh, We have several nurses with 20-plus years of experience, so they know the ropes pretty well. Right. Well, let's move on. In the last episode, I um, interviewed Dr. Uh, Brian Bledsoe, and I know you have spoken with him, uh, I believe it was at the 2009 Air Medical Transport Conference on the Madison criteria. Tell us about the background of the development of this criteria. Well, that's the, the one issue is when do we call the helicopter? You know, back... 
20 years ago when it was a rather scarce resource, you sort of flew the worst of the worst. Uh, you know, the really bad accidents, the really sick medical patients. But as time has gone on, uh, and the number of helicopter programs and the density of programs has increased dramatically, the utilization has gone way up. I mean, I see right now uh, we're flying patients that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, we wouldn't even have wildly considered flying. And um, the problem with this is, uh, you know, you look at air medical transport as a, as a procedure. And, you know, a procedure, any medical procedure has risks and it has benefits. And in situations where there is very little benefit, any risk is intolerable. Um, so we tried to, you know, tease out and let's just try to look at some of the patients that we fly that really don't require, you know, it's, hindsight is always 20-20 vision. You can always look back at that one patient who was discharged from the emergency department a couple hours later after an auto accident and say, wow, look, that patient didn't have any injuries. But if you were at the scene and maybe saw the car was really smashed up and or the patient was quite intoxicated and or unresponsive. Uh, you know, you have to put yourself in that medic's shoes who's making that call. But there are certain things that are very clear that, you know, we don't do anything with and in a rapid manner. And, you know, it's sort of a hurry up and wait type situations. And you know, one of the examples I used was uh, I was talking about a, a burn patient that I had from a rural Wisconsin hospital that uh, the kid had some chest burns. They estimated them at 20%, uh, no real airway involvement. Um, he was in some pain. Uh, the doctor wanted to transfer him to UW. And absolutely, that, that's a reasonable transport. Uh, then the, we're talking to him, well, um, I want to fly the patient. And so as the accepting physician, I, I questioned, well, what are you concerned about? Well, he's in a lot of pain. Well, how much morphine did you give him? And it turns out he was very underdosed. And we sort of went down, well, I still want to, well, I can't get an ambulance for two hours. And, well, that's okay. We'll, we'll still be here. There's nothing emergent they're going to do with this burn. And the doctor got quite upset, and uh, so you're not going to fly the patient? I said, no, the patient can safely come by ground. Uh, so next thing I know, I get a call from uh, one of the uh, other programs in the state, and they said, well, what do you know about this patient <laughs> at the community general here? And I said, well, yeah, both I and the burn surgeon said uh, they really don't need to be flown. They can come by ground. Mm -hmm. And, oh, okay. So the next thing I hear is about an hour later, here this patient's being flown in by another program. And it turns out the patient doesn't have 20% burns. He has 10% burns. Uh, he's basically admitted to the unit overnight, and his um, hospital bill was somewhere in the vicinity of $2,000, but his transport bill was in the tens of – it was twelve or $13,000, and mm -hmm. the family didn't have insurance. And that's the other aspect of this you know, there's, you know, there's risks. There's both risks associated with 
anytime an aircraft leaves the ground. But then there's financial risks. There's recently uh, been some highlights in the media about a case in Texas where uh, a child was flown from a summer camp for basically a bump on the head. Uh, turns out she was flown to a children's hospital uh, 100 miles away and had no injuries at all. And turns out the family gets a $16,000 bill. Well, the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States now is um, medical medical bills. Right. And so this is not a cheap resource to use uh, just to sort of play it safe. So we were looking at this you know, from, from sort of two different angles. So what are the things? Because there's several different reasons why people are sent by air. Sometimes uh, it's because the physician truly you know, thinks he may have an emergency. Uh, there are situations where uh, it's, I've seen where it's almost expedited patient dumping, whereas you can transfer the patient, but in the cases of um, you know, trying to get a ground ambulance or a ground critical care, it's just impossible to do sometimes. And you know if you call the helicopter, they'll get there real fast and take the patient off your hands. So although he didn't need that critical care in the rapid transport, it was just the easiest and quickest thing to get the patient out of your emergency department. Right. But but how do you how do you deal with the the fact that sometimes, you know, patient conditions can change, uh, you know, there's even differences in opinions on from from experts i you know i don't know anything about this uh the case in texas you were talking about but you know falls over a certain height uh you know or usually you want to rule out stuff and it's an automatic thing that you would transport you know to a children's hospital like they did or to a an emergency or a trauma center so you know how, how can you how can you know that um to, to, to apply this criteria and not get burned the other way where a patient should have gone by air and ended up going by ground? Yeah, I tell you, for, you know, then that's, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, the, the criteria to send a patient to a trauma center are not necessarily the criteria to fly a patient to the trauma center. Right. And a lot, of patient, a lot of programs just basically copy those criteria uh, you know, for the trauma center and use that as their flight criteria. And then you can get into the whole mechanism of injury thing. Right. Um, and Bledsoe's talked about the literature, and, and there's actually a lot of good literature out there that show mechanism of injury alone really doesn't provide you with much. Uh, you know, so if the patient doesn't have any physiologic derangement, you know, hypotension, tachycardia, altered mental status, just because they were in a high-speed rollover or fell this fall, you know, it, or, or fell, you know, so high, it really, you know, doesn't uh, require transport. And there's been a lot of literature out there to sort of debunk that, the whole, right. the whole idea of mechanism of injury. But you know the bottom line is we've all seen the patients when you're in the air medical industry, you know ahead of time that there's certain patients, like for example, patients being uh, transferred to telemetry floors or non ICU beds. Uh, typically, you know they don't require uh, a higher level because they're being taken to 
you know, a, a, not a high-level bed. You know, they're not even being evaluated in the emergency department. I've flown plenty of those patients. So, you know, that, that may be a tip-off that the patient is going to, you know, a regular floor bed. So, yeah, it's hard. You know, you can always say the the what ifs, you know, and you can take it the whole other way then. So, you know, just to rule out those occult injuries, should we be flying every traffic accident and, you know, should every, you know, fender bender come lights and sirens to the trauma center right. just to rule out? There has to be some sanity. Right. I mean, there's there's the black patients, the, the ones we know absolutely needed our uh, care, and there's no question, severe multiple trauma, head injuries, uh, you know, the time dependent lesions, STEMIs and strokes, you know, those are, they're, they're obvious, you know, there's no questioning those. And then there's the gray ones where, you know, say it is, a, you know, a STEMI patient or a non-STEMI patient with a cardiac history, uh, someone they're worried about uh, that, you know, could possibly go wrong. But then there are the patients that, and the flight crews out there know, the ones that you end up picking up in from the get-go you know that you know the, this patient really didn't require whether it was done out of convenience or they couldn't get an ambulance or really you know just genuinely uh, you know the physician on the sending side was just unaware of uh, the exact acuity of the situation. Yeah, and I think there's two other factors. I know in you know in competitive areas, and you experienced it uh, right here in Wisconsin, but the uh, in competitive areas. Uh, programs and even the medical directors at the programs are, you know, reluctant to to question or to, you know, call up and, you know, because in utilization review it falls out. It should never have been transported. I mean, it wasn't even a rule-out case, you know, um, by air, um, but programs are reluctant to go down that path because they'll say, well, then they're not going to call us. Oh, exactly. If we don't fly them, someone else will. And I tell you, it is absolute blasphemy for some of these for-profit community-based. They wouldn't dream in the wildest to turn down a flight, you know, because that's your bread and butter. I fortunately work for an institution, and I don't like to turn down flights, and I don't, you know, some people think I do this a lot, but I really don't. Our whole goal is to focus on education and feedback. Right. You know what? You really, you know, this patient was discharged from the emergency department a couple hours later, and here's what I was thinking when I picked him up, you know, the person's, you know, why he didn't need it or why the patient didn't, you know, was being transferred to a telemetry unit and didn't even have cardiology see him to the next morning. So I think appropriate education and feedback with EMS is great. And I think just through our feedback in the Madison area, we do a good job. you know, there's other areas of the country where, holy crap, they have 30 and 40 percent of their patients are discharged from the emergency department, the scene flights. You know, granted, you're always going to have a couple. Right. I think the national average is somewhere around 5 to 7 percent. But when you get around 40 percent, uh, you know, there, there's something wrong there. And the other aspect of all this, and I think Brian and I touched on this in the last podcast, is that you know, there's certain areas of the country you don't have an alternative um, because if you, you, the patient might need critical care transport. I mean, it's even beyond what they can do ALS. You know, so then their choices are if the patient can't be flown um, and there's no critical care ground program or alternative, then I, okay, do I 
uh, send one of our nurses and there, therefore deplete our resources and then put, you know, a nurse in a pretty difficult situation if they're not trained uh, to be doing transports. I mean, oh, ab- absolutely. And, you know, in an ideal world, you know, that's, you know, a key issue here. I think helicopter EMS is in a lot of areas of the country being used as a Band-Aid for the lack of right. critical care ground transport or even ALS transport. Right. You know, there's a, in some areas there, if they had good ALS density, they wouldn't even call the helicopter. So it's you know, it's being used as a Band-Aid. It's an inexpensive Band-Aid. It's sort of like saying you go into the emergency department and, you know, you got uh, you hit your ribs and you think you may have a cracked rib. And say, for example, the x-ray machine for some reason is down. It's blown a tube. And the doc says, well, hell, we can do a chest CT to diagnose your cracked rib. <laughs> and, you know, it's total overkill. Yeah, it's not only risky because of the radiation, it costs 20 times as much as a chest X-ray. And that's exactly what I think is happening in a lot of areas of the country where it's a systems problem. And some of the, I'm not saying it's predatory, but a lot of these helicopter programs realize that, wow, you know, we can make this work for us. Granted, they are providing a service, but God, wouldn't it be easier to fix the system? and right. have a tiered response. Right, and that's, you know, we're missing that. I know a lot of programs have developed uh, critical care ground transport. I was at a, a program at, with uh, Duke that had a fairly extensive ground uh, transport network, critical care ground transport network that uh, really augmented uh, the, the flight program. I think the issue in a lot of places is, you know, it gets back down to reimbursement because you are you still have a fairly high cost. I mean, you don't have the helicopter. It's, it's a lot less that way, but your staffing uh, is basically the same, um, you know, to, to do it. And then, of course, an air transport, if the weather is as is, is good and you're flying, you know, you can probably do three transports to every ground transport that you oh, could exactly. do. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of these, you know, it, it's systems problem. I'm not pointing the, the the finger at, you know, any medics or nurses or hospitals. I, I think just overall our, our systems uh, need a lot of work. Right. And that, if, therefore, you know, if you planned a more rational system that you would have these levels of EMS, you know, on up to helicopter, and it's and it is, as you called it, tiered. Well, that's uh, one of the areas that I wanted to uh, talk to you about is that I, I know your program experienced a, a crash in, in 2008, which was a very difficult year for the, the whole air medical community in the United States. And I know you lost a, a fellow flight physician, uh, the nurse, and uh, your pilot in that crash. Um, fortunately, there was no uh, patient on board at the time because you had just dropped off the patient in lacrosse and had uh, refueled and then um, uh, helicopter was reported missing I believe this that uh, in the evening and then um, uh, not found until uh, the next morning um, and that was just you know right here in lacrosse uh, area how has that crash affected you as a person um, you know having been in this industry for as long as you have this is have has had to have been a very emotional uh experience for you 
Ab- absolutely. Uh, devastation is what it is and yeah. on several different levels. Uh, on a personal level, you think, you know, if you had a very good friend who was killed in an accident, <clears throat> regardless whether it's a hunting accident or an auto accident, but here I had three friends who right. all died very suddenly. And my experiences, you know, I flew with Mark Coyne for almost 15 years. Steve Lipper, the pilot, I had known for about eight years. I was at his wedding nine months before mm-hmm. the accident. He was a good friend. And Darren Bean, uh, just a great guy, uh, incredible physician, a huge pre-hospital and EMS educator. Uh, it's always, you know, you think it's, it's, it's easy to, to speak of the dead, you know, and the, and the halo effect associated with that. But these guys were, you know, just wonderful guys. And that's the greatest sense of loss as a person I have. And, you know, in, in our whole med flight family and the helicopter and EMS community. But again, you know, the, the, the sense of loss I feel pales compared to what, you know, the families losing a husband, uh, losing a father. So on that level, yeah, just absolutely devastating outside of loss of an immediate family member. uh, This has been one of the most traumatic things in my life. And on the second level, which is hard, is that they died doing something that I do every day. And I uh, speaking me along with the other flight nurses and flight physicians and and I, I'm not pretending to be the first, you know, crew member to go through this. Uh but the the fact that they died in a helicopter crash is somewhat unnerving. Fortunately for me, I've been in aviation for a long time and so even from the moment of the crash, you know, you always think, Well, this can't happen to us but it did. I knew I would continue to fly. Uh, but it's really hard on families. Uh, we had flight, and we had several flight physicians step down at that point, and mm. and every every program that undergoes yes. a crash undergoes changes in personnel. And what's interesting is, you know, it wasn't so much their decision as the families just could not handle it and the thought of it. Um, so. Uh, we had very many who stayed, and I respect, and some who were sort of on the fence and had to work things out. And um, it's a really hard time to go through. Fortunately, we had our administration at the hospital was incredible. I've never been a big fan of the, the suits upstairs <laughs> administration. I've always been sort of one of the grunts in the trenches, but um, they really won my respect. Um, they just were silently supportive. Uh, they weren't trying to take the show, tell us when we had to be up and running or anything like that. It's just whatever you need, you know, we're here, we're backing you up. And, um, you know, just a great source of support, as was the helicopter EMS community in general. Um, So, you know, through those, and also Air Methods, uh, our vendor, uh, was very incredible and very compassionate and very helpful um, through this. Um, So eventually you do get over it. Um, I actually remember being uneasy. I was the first one out uh, when we resumed flights, I think about a week after the accident. I was on the first helicopter out. And um, I can remember it was more just, um, just sad than scary. 
Um, you know, there's just this tremendous sense of loss. And then when we're doing night flights, um, you know, you, at first you're quite nervous, uh, you know, because you're just unsure. But, you know, I can tell everyone as time goes on, the the fear factor fades. I, I don't think the sense of loss ever does. Right. Yeah, having experienced a crash uh, myself, I mean, I was at a program at Duke Life Flight in October 2000. And then I've, you know, through my work with uh, MedServe, had been the interim CEO of a program that had experienced two fatal crashes and followed closely by a uh, non-fatal crash, um, which um, I think you know the survivors group now. Krista Hagen was uh, one of the flight nurses on, on that flight and what they deal with. And I think it's been an area that we haven't paid enough attention to because uh, I was the same way. We had tremendous support from the other programs in North Carolina uh, to the administration of the hospital, same thing. But it was, uh, like you said, probably the, the hardest thing I've ever been through in, in, um, in my whole career of working, just that, uh, that, that sense of loss, the, um, I mean, not just the sense, the loss, the, you know, working with the family, uh, the Duke crash was in a residential area and he had maneuvered away from the house. We got to know the, the people in the neighborhood there. It was, um, it was very, very difficult. And I know, um, you know, having been up here, uh, with uh, Medlink Air too, I know they provided a lot of support uh, to you all because of you know the the accident happened right here uh, in town. So it's nice to to have that support from the other programs when you're down that you know you know that patients are still being taken care of. Yeah, and I I, I had never had the chance to thank the lacrosse community and their outpouring. Um, when we came up several days after the crash to bring uh, Darren, Mark, and Steve back to Madison, um, there was a tremendous uh, outpouring from the EMS and police um, community there. Mm -hmm. uh, we picked them up at a funeral home in, in, in La Crosse there. And for, as far as I could see, for 10 blocks, there were fire apparatus, EMS, EMS apparatus, um, on our way out of town, the streets were lined with people. And, um, and what was really touching was that on the hundred some mile drive back to Madison, uh, at every turnaround, the local EMS or local fire department were standing there at attention as the hearses went by. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of support and uh, the lacrosse community, especially on Alaska up there. That was yeah, where the crash occurred. Right. And uh, yeah, just just tremendous. You know, it it really made us feel that uh, that you know, although it was far from home, they they didn't die in a strange place. Right. And it's just that sense of community. I know in in North Carolina, the other teams coming in. You know, because we we knew it was our flight. We had you know said. Can you do this flight for us? They'd come in. We'd uh, during that time, you know, had uh, our crew would be there, but not flying. Would go out and meet them. We'd take. I took several pictures of the crews coming in, and it's just a the the tremendous support that you get um, from your other, uh, you know, air medical 
partners uh, doing this. And even in, you know, I've heard even in real competitive areas, it's the same same way. I think people really, you know, pull together during those times. But um, oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Mike and Oler, time's running short. I appreciate you taking. Uh, the time to to be on the podcast. Is there anything else that you would like to to say? Yeah, I mean, I just want everyone to know out there that I am a huge helicopter EMS advocate. You know, I care deeply about the industry. The fact, you know, I'm I'm still doing this after twenty some years. You know, I know we make a difference. Uh, there are thousands of lives saved every year. Um, because of flight nurses and flight medics and ground medics, you know, who are out there working. And I have tremendous respect. As I said, you know, I care a lot about the industry, but there's just so many problems in the industry that need to be sorted out. We're not going to fix them all uh, overnight, uh, but the issues about you know, regulation, issues about medical training, issues about aviation safety. You know, these all need to be looked at very carefully, and some of them with, with just common sense. But uh, but I just want, you know, I don't want to come across as being critical of the industry, you know, without reason. I, I am critical of the industry, but I'm also willing to get out there every day, and it's, it's something I believe in and, I, and does a tremendous amount of good. Yeah. Well, we we need that kind of questioning, and it's always best to uh, change ourselves rather than having outside forces force us to, to change. So uh, uh, keep up questioning. That's true. Thanks uh, so much, Mike. No problem. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-568-8276. Remember to go to take the Ames History Quiz for a chance to win a road ID. The link is in the show notes. Special thanks, as always, to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as a theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at RoomTuneEnterprise.com. Have a very happy holiday season. Take care and fly safe. Fly safe.